For episode 39 of Reasonably Sound, Automated Copy Wrongs, I spoke with my friend Parker Higgins, who has done a lot of work advocating for copyright and talking with tech companies and other organizations. What follows is the full interview that I did with Parker for that episode, edited very lightly. You might every once in a while hear these little dings that just indicate a section that got cut because, you know, we were just kind of faffing about or talking about things that didn't really relate to the matter at hand. It's all really interesting and I love talking to Parker about these things because he's so knowledgeable. Um, one of my favorite parts comes towards the end where we talk a little bit about the relationship machine learning could eventually have to the algorithmic enforcement of copyright. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, here it is. Have fun. I hope you enjoy. And uh, thanks again to Parker. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right. Uh, can you do the fun thing first, which is just introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Parker Higgins. Uh, I have worked for a long time on copyright policy and advocacy uh, in that in that space. Um, and that's involved uh analysis of, of policy proposals and analysis of the law as it stands and uh, speaking with tech companies about copyright enforcement on their platforms. I worked for about five years uh, at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a digital civil liberties group. Uh, and there I was until about a year ago, the director of copyright activism. Now I work for the Freedom of the Press Foundation, where I'm the director of special projects. Um, so first, the first big question I have for you uh, is could you just tell me um, what the DMCA is and how long it's been around? Right. The DMCA stands for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it's uh, it's turning twenty this year. It was uh, passed in nineteen ninety eight. Um, it in part implements uh, some international treaties that were agreed to in nineteen ninety six. So this is this is the. Uh, copyright policy as envisioned in the 90s, basically. The DMCA is a really big law. It uh, it aimed to modernize. We don't update copyright law too frequently in this country. And so um, the ma last major reform was in 1976. And so the DMCA aimed to change a number of things to kind of account for the introduction of the internet mostly. And uh, it has a number of sections uh, to especially kind of controversial and discussed sections. One is outside of the scope of this conversation, that's anti-circumvention tools. Um, but the one that uh, that platforms and, and user-generated content type people talk about a lot is uh, called Section 512. So could you describe just sort of briefly what 512 says and what it aims to do? Sure. So before the DMCA, if you were a platform that hosted user-generated content, you might have this problem where if someone was using your tool to directly infringe copyright, they were doing an infringement, then maybe you would be liable for uh, secondary or contributory infringement because they were using your tools or your platform. And uh, that, uh, because copyright liability can get the, the, um, the damages, the monetary damages for infringement are so high, uh, that was a scary situation for anybody who was setting up user-generated content. So the bargain that was struck was uh, as long as you comply with a number of very specific, uh, with a, you know, a checklist of very specific practices, um, you will not be held liable for that kind of secondary infringement. Um, and the most uh, kind of the the most common uh, 
things on that checklist. So the thing that we encounter most often is uh, what's called notice and takedown. So if you, uh, the, the checklist says, if you have what's called specific knowledge um, of an infringement, you have to take it down. And the way that you give a platform specific knowledge is you send them a detailed notice saying what thing is infringing. And by you... So in that case, it's a it's a rights holder um, because copyright uh, applies to basically everything. Uh, this is frequently in in terms of the the notices we that we actually see get seen. It's a record label or a movie studio or a game developer, um, but it could be anybody who has you know anybody who's got any sort of copyrighted work underlying it, which could be all sorts of things. Um, so like a you know if you took a photo and you put it online and you wanted someone to take that photo down you could do it so could you describe then what safe harbor is and how it relates to the situation that you just described right so that uh the the like limitation of liability around secondary infringement here that's a it's a lot of big words but uh but it's the same basic concept that's uh called a safe harbor so as long as you comply with all these practices then you as a platform are in a safe harbor from uh, from liability around, uh, again, secondary uh, in, uh, infringement. Um, so that covers a lot of stuff. Uh, it covers, you know, if you're a, a YouTube or a Vimeo or, you know, a Flickr or even a Twitter in the world, um, that covers things that your users are doing that might be infringement, you won't be held responsible for them. It doesn't cover, you know, infringing yourself. Um, and there have been a few cases where if you're a platform that, where if you, you know, ask your employees to upload MP3s from their collection to the service, that's direct infringement. You don't have a safe harbor from that. Could you, have there been examples of platforms that have been dinged for not fulfilling the requirements of a safe harbor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, again, to get the safe harbor, you have to, you have to complete this, you know, kind of uh, rigorous or checklist. And, um, what, what, uh, what I've seen most often, the, the most sort of annoying one where it's not, you know, it's not like a real good faith, uh, like it wasn't someone choosing not to be in the safe harbor. But one of the things you have to do is you have to register an agent with the copyright office. You have to go to the copyright office and you have to say, if if you want to send takedown notices to this company, you have to send it to this person or this email address. And that's one of the requirements. And if you don't do that, then you didn't complete the checklist. And then courts have to get into the question of was there first, was there infringement? Was there secondary infringement by the platform? And then it gets to be expensive litigation. A lot of the goal of the DMCA was just to say, was to short circuit the question of, is the platform involved at all? In practice, that short circuit, it ends up being a pretty long circuit um, in terms of, you know, there was a billion dollar lawsuit against YouTube uh, that dragged on for years and years. And YouTube ultimately um, won pretty handily, but it took a long time. Uh, and yeah, there've been other lawsuits, but for the most part, now, this is this is a, a gross generalization, but the big platforms have figured out the way to follow the letter of the law um, and the and the you know the spirit of the law too, so that that's not the part that gets litigated. 
All right. So uh, if you want to, if you're a universal music group and you want to nail them, you check the, so it's, it's all laid out in the law uh, in, you know, again, section 512 of the DMCA. Uh, subsection C is the part that talks about uh, these UGC providers. And there's a, there's literally a checklist and you, you check like, do they have specific knowledge? Can you try to, can you try to prove that they have, um, knowledge of an infringement there's also there's a few things in there like do they have red flag knowledge it's called like should they have known that there's infringement because you can you know if a platform tries to get cute and say like oh we didn't you know our 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 copyright agent didn't speak english and so couldn't read the notice or something like that so so there so you can try to go through that but um uh yeah if you're if you're Universal Music Group, you're not thinking this about YouTube anymore because with YouTube, you you know they're following the rules. You send the takedown notices, um, and that's you know you you just like search all your all your bands, and that's uh, that's YouTube. So so we're just talking about the law so far, um, and that's that could be how it works. That is like a, there's a universe where YouTube just follows the law. Uh, and and they just do what they're required to for the safe harbor, and they have the safe harbor, and so no one can sue them for secondary infringement, and uh, and maybe the record labels don't like it, but that's what the law says. Um, that is not the case. That is not, in fact, the case. And with almost all of the major platforms, that's not the case. Um, and you can, uh, it's it's pretty you know straightforward to see why that would happen because uh, YouTube and you know its parent company Google um, or Alphabet or however that works out exactly. Uh, they want to have a good relationship with the movie studios and with the record labels. And so they can't say, look, I'm doing, I'm doing what the law says. You can't sue me. So I'm just going to do that. They say, we're going to go out of our way to help you out. And so in YouTube's case, that was building a very expensive and very complicated system called content ID to automatically flag, uh, when a piece of content that has a copyright associated with it has been uploaded by somebody else. And then in in again in Content ID's case, to do a, whatever that copyright holder wants you to do with it. How do you feel about that system? <laughs> you you Parker informed professional. Yeah. What is your take on that whole thing? So um this is this falls under a big category of algorithmic enforcement. Uh and there are a few benefits to this. Um uh, especially uh, the YouTubes of the world like to point out that it sometimes allows things to stay online that otherwise just would have been taken offline altogether um, in the sense that like uh, you can, if as a, as a rights holder, as a record label, you can configure your business rules to say, okay, don't allow an ad to run on the song, but they can, they can put it up non-commercially. Um, and okay, the, that, that exists you know, exists and is a thing. But in practice, uh, the the main problem with algorithmic enforcement that uh, that I've seen and that I, you know, used to see at EFF um, is that it allows for the, the taking down or demonetization of things where there's not a valid copyright claim underlying it, where either the person, uh, the uploader is making a legitimate fair use and fair use is a right of the, of the, downstream user that's that's uh it's not an infringement and or in some case in some cases we've seen 
the uh, the rights holder is not a legitimate rights holder at all where they are um they've uh claimed something that either doesn't belong to them or isn't a, a copyrightable thing sometimes you know it's stuff in the public domain there was a case where uh where nasa had uploaded some footage uh of you know i think it was a, a, a lander on mars um and they uploaded this this is in the public domain everybody in the world owns it collectively it's in the commons um but one of the news sites that aired it said anything we air we have a copyright in so we're going to send takedowns and so the news site took down the nasa feed um and so that sort of stuff happens when you have no human in the loop uh so there may be a place for it um and it, it may be possible to do some kind of algorithmic matching uh, that does good things, but when you allow it to have the last word on speech and you you, you make the appeal process take a month or uh, or you allow it to even do things like where it's not takedowns, but it's demonetization, uh, that can have real negative consequences and it's and there's a there's a lack of accountability there. Do you feel like we currently have maybe a preliminary version of what will be the most workable system or is there something base level about this idea of algorithmic enforcement of copyright law that is kind of like shaky well so the the first thing that that scares me about the algorithmic enforcement of copyright law you know to use to use that phrase is that it's not always even copyright law again where like because copyright law incorporates the concept of fair use and algorithmic enforcement doesn't or or can't um perhaps and so it um we're in a situation now where the algorithms are enforcing the version of copyright law that the record labels wish existed the record labels and the movie studios and um or that they can convince YouTube exists, uh, and yeah, that can be a real problem uh, because, as you know, as much as I have qualms with the copyright law as it gets passed, you know, at least that goes through a legislative process, and, and you have a, a chance to give feedback on this. Um, there ends up being, you know, at the end of the day, it it matters a lot less what the law says if if the you know the layer of code uh, that enforces the law. It differs. You know, that's a, if you can't upload this video, then it doesn't matter whether you have the legal right to upload the video. You can't upload it, and so you're uh, saying that the code has like a level of authority. Yeah, it's yeah. The as you know, the the old Lessig quote of "code is law," and and it ends up being yeah, where uh, if you you know if you've made a fair use parody or something, and you have every legal right to show it, um, but. Uh, but YouTube won't allow you to show it. You can upload it somewhere else, and if you're not infringing copyright, then then there's not that much that uh, the the rights holder can can do about it. Um, they can they can make your life difficult, and they can sue you and and determine that you're not infringing copyright, and that can be a very expensive process. Um, but in a world where there's where YouTube is so far and above the the biggest video platform uh for this sort of thing or facebook is another huge video platform if you can't put it there then you functionally don't have an audience uh or you have so much of a harder time finding an audience just because of a business decision that was written into the code of you know by someone sitting in in mountain view or uh where's where's youtube they're not they're in santa 
Ah, Sam Bruno. So you think there's no version of this where you get over you, or you get past human intervention? It's so I think that there's some things that uh, that like content matching is good for. If there's an entire song and the system knows that you've uploaded an entire song and that's the beginning and the end of the content that's been uploaded, is that like? So it, can I, this is a little bit of an aside, um, but I I think this is this is funny. Um, uh, when <laughs> okay, so EFF was has been for gosh, I think a decade now, almost a decade, involved in a lawsuit, the, the Dancing Baby lawsuit, uh, Lens v. Universal, where which involves a baby dancing uh, to, Prince. to a Prince song. And it's not, the Prince song isn't, you know, um, piped into the video. It's a, it's, you know, a shaky camera video. It's like a, it's like a boombox in a kitchen. Yeah. Someone's listening to Prince in the kitchen and the baby is bouncing in his little walker thing. And it's 28 seconds long. It's very teeny in the background. There's not meaningfully any sort of copyright infringement there. Um, And it was taken down because Prince got, Prince heard about YouTube and got everything taken down. Uh, And this kicked off a very long lawsuit over whether basically whether universal has to consider fair use when they send a takedown notice. Um, this is because there's some misunderstanding as far as I get it about whether or not you have to meaningfully consider the presence of fair use before you actually send a takedown or send a cease and desist. And that like some judges have said like, well, you know, they probably <laughs> meaningfully think that it yeah. is. It, the rights holder should have a reasonable guess that this is copyright infringement, which is like, that's basically just someone in a suit somewhere going like, I have a reasonable guess that this right. is. Right. The term is good faith belief, which like, yeah, you can form a good faith belief based on misinformation. And, you know, that that's as long as you did it in good faith, then maybe that's fine. Uh, so... It, so the lawsuit's been going on for a very long time. Um, and very early in that cycle, I want to say it was around 2007, um, Content ID had already come out, I think. Uh, and the the movie studios, and I, I think it was the MPA and the RAAA, put out a document of like, here's how we think uh, Content ID type system should work. Here's here's the baseline of, and they're always doing this. By the way, they're always saying, "Here's how platforms should go above and beyond what the law says um, to re- really, you know, drive on the point." There's no legal obligation, but a lot of platforms take that as as best practices, and this has been happening for years and years. And sometimes it has like sort of the stamp of approval of a government body, even though it's not a new law. Um, and at the time. EFF, and this was way before I was there, um, wrote a document that was saying, here's what we think, like, if you're going to do algorithmic enforcement, here's what we think it should be. And it was basically sort of what you were describing before, where, like, if it matches the entire length of the song and there's no other audio, if the video and audio are the same, you know, because you can, like... There's like all the, you know, the, the Hitler downfall memes. That's all of the video except for the the subtitles and all of the audio is from one source. But these are all remixes that 
you know, there's a, there's a good argument for fair use there. Um, and so you have to say like, how would, how do you design a system that correctly doesn't flag those? And that's hard. So, you, so, you know, okay. It has to, has to have all these rules and, um, in a way though, doesn't that check, doesn't that check many of the boxes for people's greatest, um, ambitions for what machine learning can do? <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, in, you know, five, 10 years ago, we weren't talking about machine learning to do this and fair, 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 fair. yeah, false positives where a content ID type system flags something and it's a fair use because there's other, there's other kinds of false positives. But if you just look at that fair use can be hard to determine. Um, there's a four factor test, which is fun. And, and famously you don't need all the factors you need, you know, um, it's something that, uh, that can be, you know, can be pretty reliable and they're obvious fair uses, but sometimes it has to go to a judge and a judge spends a lot of pages explaining why something is or isn't a fair use. Um, and yeah, that's a hard problem. It's the sort of thing that we think like you kind of need humans for, but I wonder, I wonder, you know, if you, if you had a big database, so, so here's a funny thing. If you had a big database of fair uses and non-fair uses, you could maybe do, you could train a machine on it. Cause there are things where you go like, this has something in common. Um, and that's the thing that, that we recognize as fair use. Uh, of course, the funny thing is that making this database would probably be extremely illegal. Uh, and so you couldn't train, <laughs> you couldn't do machine learning that way. But uh, the sort of problem that most people have said is not within the realm of of the possibility of computer solving it. Well, I don't. Maybe that's changed in the last couple of years. Um, maybe it's it's a machine learning problem. I, I I don't know if it's harder than driving a car. But then again, we're not very good at self driving cars yet. So uh, so and 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 uh, at least in in the United States of America. Uh, taking down someone's speech is uh, sort of understandably has a really high bar. And so uh, so similar to the way that we keep self-driving cars off the road until we're sure they're safe, uh, groups like the EFF, who I, you know, I don't speak for anymore, um, but groups like the EFF and other civil liberties organizations want to make sure that these systems are safe for speech before they're just sent out onto the road. And so... What do you think is the, like, are we living in, are we live, are we already living in the copyright dystopia or like, do you see this getting worse before it gets better? There are certainly ways in which our situation can get worse and it can get worse stepwise. You know, it can like, there are a lot of ways where, uh, where our current, um, like copyright matching and enforcement algorithms could become stricter. Uh, they could YouTube and other sites don't tell you exactly what they're matching on, uh, so that you can't change the video just just enough. Um, in the same way, like this is how anti-spam measures work too. They don't tell you exactly what to do um, to get around the system, um, but they could keep tweaking that and make it stricter and stricter. Uh, and so that could be a problem. Um, the real danger, as I see it, is that once a system's in place for matching certain kinds of speech that has some you know property some flag where right now we say the flag is uses a copyrighted work um and then the system's in place for and so we remove it uh and or we keep it down which is the, the next thing that people are discussing uh there's no reason why that has to be limited to copyright 
and we're already beyond the what the law says you have to do. The law says you don't have to do any proactive policing, and yet the major platforms all do this kind of proactive policing with with algorithmic enforcement. Um, what really scares me is that you know not that people won't be able to upload the you know a Radiohead song, uh, but that legitimate criticism of of the government or of corporations or um of you know any kind of powerful actor in society uh is the next thing that will be targeted and taken down by the same systems because it is a real almost impenetrable cabal of moneyed forces that maintain the system to begin with yeah there's there's not a lot of like again like if this were just what the law said that they had to do then we could look at what the law says and you can read section 512 of the DMCA and you know exactly what what they have to do um and you know courts discuss it and you can you can call your senator or congressman and ask them to change it uh but once it's the decision made in San Bruno uh between someone at YouTube and someone in Hollywood or someone in you know Nashville uh then there's that pressure point where you're you're the government or your uh your uh, uh you know coca-cola and you say you call someone in san bruno and you say hey this this criticism of coca-cola we would like to see it come down and then yeah i mean and then we hope that youtube is is uh is principled enough to to stand up for that speech um but that's a that's a scary thing to have to hope for do you feel like the pendulum is swinging in one direction or another? Or do you feel like this is a, is this an inflection point where we find out maybe in the next four or five years where we're headed? Well, so I think that there's, I, I mean, I think in some ways things have gotten better. Uh, and in some ways, so I think like one thing that we've seen is that YouTubers as a category uh, and that this applies similarly to other, to other power users of other platforms but um youtubers have a sense of like having rights as users uh and those rights aren't granted to them by the government their the rights are you know or else i'll take my business elsewhere um but it's meant that some of the uh youtube in particular and, and the platforms in general do kind of respond to to feedback from users and and not the not corporations and you know, you see when there's an outcry over uh, the way that Let's Plays are being demonetized or taken down or, uh, or you know, 10 years ago, it was, uh, it was lip sync videos. And um, when you, when they see that kind of outcry, they do respond. And I personally don't, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not enough of a cyberpunk fan where I want to like count on the principles of corporations to stand up to other corporations uh but but as long as we're in that situation uh it's it's nice to see sometimes that that these platforms are standing up for speech in a way that isn't required by law but uh but is you know it's either either you can cynically call it just a good business practice or you know maybe maybe that's what they want to be as platforms um so there's that but there's also a lot of there's uh, on the other side, there's push to expand the things that that uh, that they that these platforms are required to take down, um, or that they don't have a safe harbor from liability for. 
Uh, so the biggest copyright development in the United States in, in terms of legislation uh, was six years ago. And that was when the Stop Online Piracy Act, which was going to make uh, these takedowns kind of more required, basically, or and and uh, that that I so for for the younger listeners um, kicked off really, really massive protests uh, in January of 2012. Um, and so the the bill was tabled and uh, and kind of no one's had the the uh, political uh, chutzpah to, to to go back and and try to push for stricter copyright laws since. Um, but in other areas of the law, uh, we have seen pushback on trying to limit what these platforms are allowed to carry without liability. Um, and and that can be a scary development because because we've built these really powerful systems for filtering and removing technology. And we've seen a lot more centralization where, if, uh, where you know, 10 years ago, you would put a video up on YouTube because it was a good place and, and, you know, it was a, it was a host that, that was unlikely to go down or whatever. Um, but now you put a video on YouTube because there's not a lot of options and that's where everyone's going to see it. And, and, you know, the, the CMS for the site that you want to cover it only does YouTube embeds and all these things where we now, if you want to distribute a video, you basically have to do it in a way that flies on YouTube. And if you want to distribute, uh, yeah, that's video is kind of the, the most centralized like that, but, uh, but you can, you can see that applying to all sorts of things. And, and, um, and so that centralization combined with the push to, to, uh, restrict more kinds of speech, uh, is, I, I try not to be paranoid. Um, but, but that's a, that's a, a, a line that is pretty easy to follow to a, pretty terrifying conclusion. Um, what do you feel like is the not terror? Just briefly, like what's a, what's a not terrifying conclusion? If well, we want, like, if we want to end on a positive note, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if I do, but I just, just so that we have it, like what, what do you see as being the, like, you know, what's mm -hmm. the, what's the silver lining here? If there is one. Well, I think, you know, users are, again, users are more proactive about, uh, about standing up for their rights as users of a platform rights that are that you know they they enforce by you know just sticking around and 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 using that platform um and that's real and the other thing is that uh it looks like the march towards centralization on the web is inevitable uh but we really don't have a lot of years of of uh like history and so YouTube seems invincible, but uh, but if they really get bad enough with with the things that they don't allow, or the or if it feels like their users are not viewers or video creators, but instead uh, movie studios and record labels, if it feels bad enough, then they could still be uh, challenged, and that the ability for for other platforms to challenge that ends up being like a good safety valve. And so, so yeah, I don't know if I were trying to challenge YouTube right now, it would be a quite a slog, but, um, but it could happen. And there are still people thinking actively every day about anti-censorship measures. Um, and mostly those people are talking about 
activists in Iran or, or, you know, uh, or people who are trying to browse the uncensored web in China. Like actual authoritarian regimes that. Yes. Uh, but the technology that they build, um, that gets better and better and that, uh, that gets, uh, like built into the, the infrastructure of the web in a lot of places, um, that makes, uh, censorship harder, even even when it's the sort of censorship, like soft censorship of of copyright enforcement and things like that. And so, so there's you know, I, I, to to be optimistic, it's it's that uh, there's there's a lot of smart and talented people working on this problem on the other side too. Um, and so uh, so I I think that the um, to look at like the possibility of, of total like, uh, corporate censorship or corporate or government censorship of the, of platforms or of the web. Uh, it's, it's not as inevitable as it, as it might seem when, uh, uh, you know, on a bad day. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that I didn't ask you that you think I should? Nah. Yeah. Yeah. I think you got all the things on my list. This is, this is what I talk about all the time. So, <laughs> uh, thanks for coming by Parker. Thank you.